Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, Executive Editor of Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. And my guest today is Garrett Brown, the man who invented the Steadicam and was his invention's earliest operator on the very first films to use the Steadicam, like Rocky and The Shining. So a little context behind this conversation. I interviewed Garrett a couple times back in December of 2016 as part of this really cool screening series that was up at Lincoln Center celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Steadicam. Okay, so now this week over at IndieWire, it's 80s week, and we're doing this whole series of articles looking back at that era of filmmaking, which includes one on publishing tomorrow about how the Steadicam, after Garrett's collaboration with Kubrick on The Shining, forever changed Hollywood's approach to camera movement. And so we thought, in conjunction with 80s Week and the article I'm writing, that we should publish this old conversation with Garrett over here on Toolkit. So I hope you enjoy this. It's, it's really a remarkable story how Garrett, a then 30-year-old budding filmmaker in Philadelphia, with not necessarily a ton of technical background, but motivated by this incredible frustration with his inability to create smooth camera movement, forever changed filmmaking with his invention and, and through his collaboration with some of the greatest filmmakers of his generation. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. You weren't the technical person. This was a, a need, a filmmaking need. No, I mean, I have a technical side, but the, oddly enough, the gear was never that interesting to me. The, some of the early iterations were, were grotesque. Uh, or klutzy, or, or primitively made, or one was made out of plumbing pipe, for God's sake, with two plumber's weights on it, you know. But each one of them allowed me to shoot stuff that had never been seen before. And my, my understanding, you know, from Philadelphia looking way across the horizon at mm -hmm. the movie business, I saw stuff that had never been seen. And that's a very intoxicating thing. When we had talked prior, you had talked about the fact that you, you were on a, a vacation with your family and you got the plumbing supply and you built the, mm -hmm. the tea. And I, we've all seen those images of you running through the fields and chasing your wife and, I don't know, your friend in the pool. And it's, it, it, yeah, but well, that was done with a later, that much was more sophisticated later. object. You but know. the same type of thing, though, this kind yeah. of just like liberating and just running. And I have a clip tonight from that pole thing okay. that I found which just is shocking to look at, you know, on a lot of, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but each iteration got a little more sophisticated. Uh, alas, got heavier. But the, the results in each case were better and better. And then finally, this, the so-called last one was just uh, an adrenaline generator, you know, just working with it. Even the limited amount I could see through the, those viewfinders was astounding. And because that was the thing is that I don't think people realize is that um, for someone who was in love with camera movement and that visceral nature of being able to follow something, uh, the, the dollies and having to do all that was, was very cumbersome and e even in and of itself very, very limiting. And, and, and the handheld shots with these rigs were, were, so, were so shaky. And I, it, it had to be this thing where I think now, 40 years into this, all this is very taken for granted. But to, you know, I, I think you had talked about the fact that um, it was the first shot was Bound of Glory that you did in a film, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think was this like crazy shot. Was it was the first one that you did in a movie? It was it was on a crane? It was yeah, a very bold idea of Haskell Wexler's. Uh, shockingly bold, right out of the box to perch me up on a crane. Uh, 
which I'd never seen before. I'd never been in the presence of a Chapman Titan crane. Standing on the thing, leaning against a uh, you know built-up set of risers, with an operator trying to you know calm me down up there behind me, ostensibly to help me you know get in the mood for this or whatever. <laughs> and the crane lowers down and stepping off the crane, with instructions to wait until I was tapped on the shoulder so that the remaining guy on the crane wouldn't be catapulted off the crane. It was all. It was all. You know, I think in the same way that as some young soldier is sent into battle for the first time. It isn't that you're necessarily terrified, it's just that it's all so unusual mm -hmm. that you're in some kind of altered state, you know? And this shot was a lot, there was a lot of extras, there was a lot of movement. I mean, this yeah, was, this it, was like a, this wasn't... It was wall, this... 900 extras, period costumes, period vehicles, smoke, atmospheric smoke, you know? So no pressure? No, no, no pressure at all. <laughs> and would I, you have, you had, three, you had three chances at it? Is that what it was? I did, I did. I was a bit scared the first time, and the second time a guy came up to us and didn't realize I was shooting. I don't know if I mentioned that to you, but... Well, the idea, I think what you were saying was is that everybody, that the camera, because it was separated from you and people weren't used to seeing this, Yeah, exactly. there was this, who's this weird guy just carrying something. Yeah, so the sewing machine. There's an instance of that effect on Marathon Man that was just startling and hilarious to all of us. Marathon Man was essentially the third film, although we went back and forth on them. And I'm shooting in the Diamond District in New York on 47th Street with 150 of our extras dressed as Hasids and an unlimited number of real Hasids on the street. Which incidentally we couldn't tell apart, so we would be deferring to our extras and ordering around very irritated, genuine Hasids. And we thought, in order for me not to be looked at by people, that we would. I, I had a sweater made with three arms, mm -hmm. so that, that my mechanical arm was in one of them. So here's a three armed man walking down the street with, and we put the camera in a garment bag. So it's a floating, worrying garment bag with a big square hole in one side and a three-armed man. And of course, it's 47th Street. Nobody paid the slightest attention, nor would they ever to the real study cam, because you know, you're know you the human here, and there's the lens down beside you. People, if they look, they look at you. And that was of Olivier, and nobody paid the slightest attention to him, which was quite fantastic. <laughs> but with Bound for Glory, you only had three takes. One was ruined by an extra just coming, coming up, right? next to you and then I, I think so it comes down and you basically are following almost like a, a quite a long distance right it was yeah. through through all like hundreds of people through the crowd like a ghost and yeah. following Quaid uh, Randy Quaid and, and David Carradine and for our younger listeners uh, back in the day you didn't just look in the camera to see if you got it you waited for dailies, and so I'm guessing it was like a day or two later, right, that you finally got to see it. You're probably, uh, Wexler didn't exactly give you an easy first one to do, uh, and this is, this, is the, this is the big test. And what, what was that like sitting there in that room with dailies for that first big shot from Bound from Glory? Well, you'd, you'd have to imagine that those two days were spent as, as, as anonymous a creature as I've ever been in my life, not known to any of them except Haskell. Uh, barely known to the guy that helped me on the crane and the assistant who very you know, irritatedly had to reload my one and only mag, and no one else. So I played a hockey game, you know, a uh, table hockey game with the stuntman who fancied that they were good. And I misspent my youth in all-nighters playing the hockey game at Tufts University. 
just prior to leaving in disgrace. So I was probably one of the better table hockey players ever. So I immediately pulled my power play on them and stunned them. So they started to call me the stranger because mm -hmm. I was, you know, unknown guy beating all the stuntmen, some of whom I became quite friendly with. So that was the atmosphere when I walked into dailies after two days, the entire crew, none known to me, falling in there. And no, nobody was particularly interested in this stunt. Haskell was trying out a gadget. Nobody could tell if it was any good. They knew it had wasted an appalling amount of time. I uh, misidentified the producer as the projectionist, so he was annoyed. So I went to the back of the room and sat very small watching Haskell's fabulous stuff for two hours mm -hmm. and wishing that I was anywhere and hadn't done this at all and could I only be back in Philly with my little dolly and all that. And then the shot came up and the shot was astounding. I hadn't seen it really because my viewfinder was so crappy. So I, I had only a dim idea that it, and the shot was amazing and there was a stunned silence after it and everybody in the room leaped up and roared Haskell's name and clapped and so on. It was my first standing ovation. <laughs> yeah. Might have been one of my last <laughs> ovations. But you don't get that many of those in a lifetime, you know. So my assumption is that with your 30 impossible shots demo floating around and the success on Bound for Glory, that fairly quickly your invention in you became very high in demand. Like I imagine this was something that a lot of people wanted. Uh, but you'd on. be wrong, okay. I would, would I will? Okay. Very wrong. Oh. Yeah, that's what I thought would happen. But it, it turns out that something new or that new is embraced by really bold people. And a lot of most of the other people, the raggedy ass rest of them, sit back and wait to see, you know. So my idea that the phone would ring off the hook and that I would work every day wasn't true. I had, I had long periods between gigs. And it, again, was the really hot shots that had the confidence and the power to plug a shot like this into a, an expensive production day. Uh, I did Bound for Glory, Rocky and Marathon Man back and forth for a good part of 1975. And then, uh, what happened in 76 was when people saw the stuff, when they actually saw it, and when Rocky won Best Picture, and when Bound for Glory won Best Cinematography, and, and Marathon, it was just a ravishing film. And once that happened, then, then the phone started to ring, and there was then a lack of operators. And sadly for me, I was pay, playing basketball with the only other Steadicam operator on the planet who I had taught. And for reasons I'll never quite understand, his sneaker was under my foot and I twisted my ankle really badly. If I'd broken it, I'd have been back in three months, but I was six months out in a fiberglass cast and Danny Lerner, the operator in question, got all the films. <laughs> now, you know, I had plenty to do and I was perfectly happy, but uh, it was extremely annoying. Marathon Man strikes me as, and it's been a while since I've seen it, but it strikes me as the type of film Whereas Rocky, there were shots you couldn't have gotten without the Steadicam. Marathon Man, in particular, the, the famous going up the stairs. Marathon Man strikes me as a film that would have had to have been made completely different or just in the sense that, that those scenes where he's being chased or he thinks he's being chased and then also the training 
it, it, it's almost the whole entire style of the film. Like it feels like that one, and once again, I haven't seen this in a while, but it feels like that's the first one where it's like, this is a whole film that wouldn't have been, that would have been made differently without, without you and the Steadicam. I think it would have been fine, and Rocky would have been fine, but I'm a big fan of the emotional wallop that a good moving shot gives an audience. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's unquestionable that this resulted in some, you know, some extra volts, you know, some extra, some extra power. And something happens when a shot like the training shot you mentioned, which is running with Dustin around the reservoir in Central Park, which I sat on a, a dreadful golf cart that had two speeds, stop and full out go, and shot him with a fairly telephoto lens against the, you know, the, the pails of that storm fence running by in the background and the reservoir in the background and a couple of skyscrapers across the reservoir just frozen in the frame, just slowly drifting through. And it acquired that surreal quality where his head moved and his breathing was loud in the foreground. And you know what? If you, you shake that frame, which would have been inevitable otherwise, to keep up with him in any other known way, right? That's a different shot. That shot doesn't have that, just that supernatural power that almost shows you his, what do they call what you get when you break past something when you're running, not pheromones, but something else that runners get. They, endorphins. Endorphins. Mm -hmm. And you can almost see the goddamn endorphins in that shot, you know. But if you're shaking, then endorphins are hard to find in a shaky shot. And that's, I think, maybe the thing I was trying to get at also is this idea that I initially, in, oh my God, we can do this. There's a spectacle of this. Do you know, the idea that, like, you know, um, running up those stairs in Rocky is such a triumphant moment, but there's also just this thing where it's like, oh my gosh, that this is, you can feel that this has happened in this one shot. But I have to assume that slowly, and you worked with so many great filmmakers that this became a device that was folded into cinematographers and directors language. That this started to become something where you started to see it being a tool that was being built into not just what was possible, but also being built into their language. Is that? Yes, and built into and used to simply make something more facile or easier or faster, yes, for sure. Although I have to go back to Rocky because that running up the stairs shot is very nice, it's lovely, but it's not my favorite shot in the film. My, my favorite shot in the film, I mentioned to somebody this afternoon, is, is and seeing it, in this, seeing this 4K print, it just hit me right. There's a new the 4K, face. we didn't, this was offline. There, there was, there's a brand new 4K print that will be part of the yes. Center thing, and you got to see it I last got to week, see it last in Philly. Philly. Yeah, and in that shot is, of course, the, the scene in the cold store, the meat, you know, the meat locker with these hang sides of beef that Stallone ends up punching, you know. But first he's given a tour of this place by, by the Pauly character, right? Um, and suddenly I'm passing between these things like the moat in your eye, like a disembodied ghost mm -hmm. in a business used to a big swath cut for a dolly. You know, you don't, you don't get through stuff like that. You don't get near walls. You don't, you know, you don't get near things. And suddenly the mat box is slicing by these things. And since they're swinging like some kind of ghastly, you know, pendulums, 
I'm able to accelerate in a way that Dolly can never could and slip between them, you know, so that as this one clears the other one, I'm through that hole, you know. And it, it not only was exhilarating, it was fun to do, but it was astounding to look at. And of course, I got nailed by these, you know, pieces of beef every now and then. I did, literally had tallow on the side of my coat, you know, from you're not, being. You're not a small man. You're and right, I, yeah, right. and I was. And when you're hit by one of those things, it outweighs you by 300 pounds. <laughs> but the nice thing is, the lens is so disembodied from you that I could go through and be walloped by one. And you look at the damn dailies, you cannot see it, you know. And that's also, I think, one of those things that a lot of like a De Palma and a Scorsese, this that ended up that feeling of moving through space in the way that things are kind of coming in and out of frame and what that did to... Yes, it's a faux 3D effect. Yeah. It, it has, in, the, in Kubrick's hands, who wants it all centered, which is a, an unusual thing in some ways, although effective in The Shining. But you, when you're penetrating space like that, you do not have to be aimed where you're going, as De Palma knows very well. And many of these shots would be canted off to one side, and where you're going is in the far left of the frame, which of course is perfectly fine by the audience. They sit there and you go, okay, we're going there. But this side of the frame shows you all the interesting stuff over there. It's a carnival of, of things that are of interest and some of which were tougher, impossible before, and filmmakers are looking at this, and certainly filmmakers like Scorsese and De Palma and many others see things in those early films that suggest not only a, a, not a particular shot, but a, a particular feeling, I think, that they can get. My problem, as mentioned, is, of course, I had, to, I had nobody else to do it. And I, after The Shining, which was my master class, we started teaching people. And that was great. Well, let's talk about The Shining for a second, because my, that film shot for I mean, this is a, a year. year. A year. So were yeah. you on it for a year? I was on it for a year. So you were at the, and so I have to, my, I, I mean. I took there's, three months off to shoot Rocky two or two months off. But there's a repetition and there's a lot. And it, first off, he's such a precise filmmaker who has such a, that is, is that drives so much to, to getting something particular. But I also have to imagine there's a repetition and a, you called it a masterclass. I mean, what, what was that like? What was, I mean. What was... Repetition is a civilized way of describing <laughs> 45 or 50 takes or something. <laughs> it's like doing an entire season of a Broadway show in, in an afternoon where every time you do this dance number, you learn something else about the stage or about your, where your feet should be or so on. I used to say that if, if you're doing 45 takes, by take five, I would be satisfied. I wouldn't think anybody who wasn't insane would be satisfied. By 14, it, it seemed beyond question to me that we were near perfection. But of course, it wasn't very arduous for me because it was three minutes of shooting, let's say, and then three minute playback, and, and often a three minute argument about where the crosshair should be. If we are literally to be centered on everything, well then the crosshair has to be on Shelley's nose or whatever it is, you know. What it is, is each time thereafter, you learn some infinitesimal thing about it, you know. And that was thrilling to me. What I, I would learn that I can actually turn my body halfway and scrape closer to this wall, and this foot can actually be over there, and I can, I can go faster here and slower here. So I, I would be showing things, at least to myself, if not to Stanley, 
who didn't pay a great deal of attention to all this because he wanted it all in inventory for cutting. But I'd like to think that you know, he would see what happened with some of those later takes when he was editing. It's impossible to say what take was what. He had performances from the actors that were almost from hysteria to apathy and back again, so that he had the ability to actually construct a performance by editing, which is amazing. Could, could you explain, because I don't think um, for, for the young filmmakers that, that listen to this and that read IndieWire and that know the shining inside and out, those hotel shots and those long, those, those long moves, why, obviously it's much easier with a steady cam, but why a track and a dolly would not have, you wouldn't have been able to do something like that. Because I think when people are thinking steady cam, they are thinking about the going through the copa, they're thinking about going up the stairs, and they don't necessarily think of like that yeah, that's precision overload. That's a great, question. Overlo great question, and the reason is something that I think your young filmmakers wouldn't necessarily think of because they haven't been faced with it. And that is, you cannot build a large set and make it dolly quality. It cannot be done. When you lay a dolly shot that has to be smooth, it often is overlapping layers of very precise plywood or its rails. But if you're looking straight ahead, you can't see the rails and nor can you see the plywood. So Kubrick, if I hadn't showed up, Kubrick would have been stuck with those undollyable floors and a, and a degraded look to this, again, endorphin smooth look, right? And he was always so precise. He didn't even like the way that the film shook. In yes, the, he in rebuilt his projectors, you yeah. know, his dailies projectors, and he would harass theater owners if, if he heard that their projectors needed a rebuild. So what happened was he attempted to uh, do without me as a contingency. What if I sucked? You know, what if I showed up and the thing didn't really work? So I arrived. What if, to, what if he doesn't want to be here a year? <laughs> yeah, well, he, he thought it would be six months. So I showed up and there is a Duchevaux, a 2CV Citroën stripped down. It's stripped with no engine, no running gear, no nothing except the four wheels, that amazing suspension, and a seat for a guy with a steering wheel and a black, a wooden platform. What is that for? They would put a camera on top of that on shorty legs or something like that. They would have the grips push it through the sets and the wheels would take up the, the floor and it would all kind of stabilize. And I heard from Dougie Milson, my assistant, that they gave it a try and it was dreadful. And if you think about the Busby Berkeley crane shots uh, lurching through those big sets and big dance numbers, if you watch the corners of those frames, those cranes look like they're you know, at sea. They lurch, they, the frame edges lurch around. You know, The audience watches right through that and watches the dance and doesn't think about it. But you know, for Kubrick's purposes, that was, that was useless. So here we are, I'm there and I could do this trick and he latched onto it and that was it. The, the series that's going on at Lincoln Center is, is, is highlighted a bunch of Fantastic films, fantastic filmmakers, and it's—I I don't want—it's unfair to just highlight, you know, ask you to to pick your favorite or something. But watching your tool go out into the world, go in, be starting to be used by other operators, seeing other artists start to use it. What were some films and some moments and some filmmakers uh, where you started to see them use the Steadicam and 
in, in exciting ways and kind of opening up the, some of the possibilities of camera movement. You had me talk about what it felt like in the, in the very beginning. Um, there happens to be a website, a wonderful website called Study Shots that has some of the absolutely most wonderful study cam shots and a lot of background about them and interviews with the makers. And so I would recommend your listeners to have a look at that because yeah. that, that's a fabulous resource. Mm -hmm. And online you can, there's a video called The Art of Study Cam that gives you, if, you're, you know, if you want a compacted trailer type version, a spectacular look at that. But I, I shot altered states. There are things in that I loved. I like Boogie Nights a hell of a lot. I love Carlito's Way. There's amazing work in that film. Do Palma doesn't get recognized enough for what he does with the camera. It's, 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 I don't think so, and I, I puzzle over why that is, but his, he's an absolute master. I think um, it's a lowbrow, highbrow thing. I think it's a little bit of the, the Yeah, so there's or a bit of an, our noses turned up at that, but yeah. it's, it's really great stuff. Obviously, Magnolia, you know, I was, I was mad for Pulp Fiction. No, Scorsese and De Palma, they, they came up pre-Steadicam, but you look at someone like PTA um, who never lived in a world where your invention didn't exist. Well, he lived not as a filmmaker. And the way that he even thinks in these long takes and he thinks about how he's introducing characters, that's something where that type of filmmaker, I mean, he was, I mean, there's all now, there's filmmakers that are kind of only existing in this Garrett Brown world. Isn't that strange? It's a strange thought. Mm. You know, I mean, do you think that? Do you go see Magnolia? Do you go see Inherent Vice and think, like, and see that generation? Uh, I do. I, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with that because, of course, I've been teaching people that were born mm -hmm. decades after Steadicam existed. It's like teaching somebody to drive in this era. The car's been around a long time, you know? I mean, I find that... that this thing is almost so universal now. There's almost nowhere in the world that we go that we wouldn't be asked out to eat by somebody that you know if they knew we were there or invited onto anybody's set, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, some of the some of the results of this are ones that I, never would have occurred to me. Just the idea of being so congenial with people that I admire everywhere, you know, and being allowed to to join in with them. It, is an absolutely marvelous thing. And then there is watching what they do with this thing, which is still thrilling to me. I, we saw Jackie last night or the night before, and there are jaw-droppingly wonderful study cam shots in that. And I have to say one of my all-time favorites is The Revenant. Mm. The work, uh, Scotty Sakamoto's work in that, and I'm a big fan of Alejandro's in any event, is shatteringly good, shatteringly good. These wonderfully sustained shots. If you want to get into it, I, one reason I'm not a fan of handheld for action scenes, which you know, I had to put up with people saying, oh, well, we should do it handheld. It needs to be rough, quote, right? And in this, in this talk that I'm going to do tonight, if, if I can squeeze it into 40 minutes, I'm on the hunt for a, what I would love to find is a better way to shoot really intense action scenes. That, that accords better with the way humans actually see what, let's say, if you're being mugged, violently mugged, what would you be seeing? You know, that's a good stand-in for, I'd be happy to apply a mugging to you at this point if you want to see it, but what do you actually see? You do not see what looks like handheld. Our view of the world is never off-level, ever. 
Mm. Because our eyes automatically do that. Our brains are steady cams. Yes, it's our our, yeah. our our. So I always say to students when they start walking around with a camera right away is that you have to realize. I know your instinct is like you want to show people how you see things, but that our brains and our minds are already stabilized. They are so, brilliantly stabilized. And and that yeah. and that you're just going to drive us all nuts. And so here's the 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 really weird thing is you know as we said why should. Why should your actors see each other with more stability than the audience sees them? Mm -hmm. That's an atrocity committed by the filmmaker for expedient purposes in some cases, or just out of enthusiasm. They love hand. It's fun to handhold, you know, and it's fun to be the auteur. Except that, hang on, wait a second, those results are not that great. There's been some new inventions, in particular, in the kind of that were started in kind of like the low budget film world with the 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 movie oh, yes, yes, kind of yes. going this way. Yeah. And you know there, there's also been some now some hybrids which I think are very exciting of this like kind of using some of that technology and building it in into the Steadicam, but that that movie technology is starting to move its way up and up the food chain into into larger and larger films, and there's almost like these like two camps that are sometimes developing. You talk to to, to veteran Steadicam operators and they're talking about like how that visceral feeling and my ability to be with them is never going to be able to simulate it. And then there's others that say, well, there's an interesting technology here that we can kind of integrate and use. There's no one else I would rather hear from on this topic than you as to, as to where these things are going and where this technology is going. For listeners that are not aware, this, the study cam is stable because it's, it's a pretty big inert object and it's held in most innocently at its center of gravity by a gimbal and it floats in space courtesy of the arm and so what you've got in the gimbal is what's the is at the heart of what these new things are well too. they they in effect are a big gimbal but yeah. I'm I'm holding I'm holding the camera and I've still got my mitts on it right but I can hold it so lightly that nothing gets through to it or and this is the key if I suddenly need the camera to go from here to there like the way we look at things zoom with your eyes a so-called saccade incidentally if you're interested where your eyes dart from one thing to the other, we do a thousand times a day. You have your hands on it. You tighten your hand up, you push it over there, it goes exactly and directly to where you go. What happens with the, with the gyro gimbals is they isolate the camera in three axes. And this is by virtue of motors that are instructed by gyros. So you are holding the frame outside all this and inside the frame, this supernaturally stabilized camera. They are brilliantly stable, no yes. question, yeah. in all three axes. But there are only two ways to operate one of these gimbals. One is it's in what the Movi guys call majestic mode, which is if you move the frame outside it, eventually it realizes it needs to catch up right. and it starts to lurch after that and it stops in some manner. So there is a you lag. You get kind of like floating lag yeah, there's thing. A, there's a kind of a really odd lag, a druggy kind of lag between that happening. The other alternative is uh, increasingly sophisticated wheels or uh, fluid heads that are, that are driving the motors in the Moby. And that can move extremely precisely. However, you're, you know, this is again, I'm, I'm incredibly biased because I, I love the study cam, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like offering me a violin that tunes itself. I don't need no violin that tunes itself, I'm a violin player. So the guys with the wheels are not the guy holding it. And there is that slight disconnect between the mover and the aimer. Mm -hmm. The aimer is the guy with the wheels. The guy moving is this. And 
the essence of these shots is a perfect coordination between move and aim, between stop and start, you know. And so if it, well, if it remains sloppy like that, you know what's missing is the great and glorious and seminal movie-making art of operating. We operate our eyes like champs. You operate like the best operator ever. You look at what you want to look at. Boom, precisely, you know. And so try and imagine that you were drunk enough that when you look, it's like this. You out there can't see what I'm doing, but I hope it has some comical effect. <laughs> well, I think what you're also talking about, and this doesn't apply to all Steadicam shots, but an immediacy between operator and often character operator in person, like a dance and that ability. Exactly. And while you can, a director can arrange that and as much as possible, there is something that just happens human to human and being in space with them and being able to react in an immediate way that kind of gives us that visceral feeling. Yeah, exactly so. And that gets back to the nature of the difference between the two grand forms of operating. If you will, objective shots, storytelling shots, Guys, God's eye view, director's eye view shots. Kind of what PTA does and what kind of weaving it through but, yeah, but it, 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 and it doesn't play as the look through anybody's eyes or any, any entity's eyes. It is a storytelling shot, invisible to the audience. It could soar up to 100 feet. It could be on the carpet. It doesn't make you ask yourself, what is this, suddenly a rat or a bird? You know, It's storytelling. The other kind of shot, obviously, is subjective shots, which are meant to be overt points of view, right? The objective shot in the Western tradition, as I love it, is invisible to the audience in its particulars. What counts is what you see through it. What counts is the story, the action, the thing, what you were showing you, not the artifice of the shot so much, right? So I, this is a long way around to saying that if you are making an objective shot of an actor, the very best thing you can do as a default is stop when the actor stops and move when the actor moves. And do not skid on past if the actors stop because suddenly that calls attention to you as an independent watcher of some sort, you know, who didn't get the idea that he was stopping, you know. So this, this connection is, is ancient in our Western movie making, which is admittedly a stylized form of movie making, but this is what we love and know. And when somebody breaks those rules, it, it shocks you a bit when Lars von Trier shakes the crap out of the camera. Uh, beyond just being annoyed, you know, because I like his movies eventually, I have to get used to it. The audience has to begin to ignore it and find their way through it and watch what's happening and pay no attention to it. But I would offer you that's not a virtue. You know, that's, that's a bit of indulgence, you know. Fork up. Put up some dough, Lars, and hire a great study cam operator and watch what happens. Come on. Pal. Call Mr. Brown. He's got some recommendations. I mean, Anthony Dodd Mantle shot a number of his films. He's a dear friend of mine, and he, he studied study cam with me in Pennsylvania for a week. You know, uh, you know, he is Lars' tool when he's shooting his film, and he has to do what he says. But it's, I would not blame it on Anthony. I would, I would say that that's a perversity. Uh, almost criminal perversity, I might say, of Lars von Trier. No, I, I you can't put that in. <laughs> um, Garrett Brown, uh, there's not a lot of people that you could say this about, but you changed movie making, and for the better. And uh, I, well, that's, I, that's an important part of that statement. <laughs> for the better. Well, that's true. There's people. You destroyed movie and making. And I think, yeah. I think going. Uh, 
and being able to just see what um, Film Society of Lincoln Center is doing and seeing all these uh, these great movies and uh, seeing all these great artists and what they've done with uh, done with your work. I, I hope you enjoy these uh, next few weeks. Yes, it's an honor to me and very gratifying and exciting. I can't wait. No. Well, thank you very much and thank you for talking. Thank you. Mm -hmm.